Good morning, everybody. I thought for sure second service I'd have a different reply than I did first. Good morning, everybody. Thank you. Don't you hate when like we do that from up here? You're like, why do you guys do that all the time? Because you should come up here sometime and say, hey, and everyone's like, hey. It's kind of a downer, so just so you know, kind of help people who are up on stage, just help us out. Even if you don't feel like it, just fake it, all right? Just say, hey, I'm not feeling great, and I'm kidding. Anyway, hey, if you have your Bibles, you're going to want to have them handy this morning, but you are probably not going to be able to get through all of the passages that we're going to go through, so I recommend that you take a look at the screens as we walk through this morning, because we're going to cover a lot of ground, a lot of passages of Scripture today. So we're continuing our series called Poison, which is a series about sin. And to give a quick context recap, if you recall, we talked about the origin of sin comes when we first of all try to be our own God, uh, which is what Adam and Eve did in the garden. And then when we find out that we can't do that very well, we just choose to replace him, which is an idol, and we put something in his place. And the reason that we do that is because the driving force in each one of our lives is this thing called satisfaction. And sin comes when we try to satisfy our own souls with the way only Jesus can do that in our lives. And so that's kind of the context that we've been working through as we walk through this series. And so today we're going to talk about what's the antidote for our sin. All of, obviously, we've talked about all of us have sinned, all of us struggle, all of us have gotten off track with God. And how do we answer to that brokenness in our life? Now, obviously, if you've been in church, you know what the answer is. It's not a secret. It's Jesus. It's his death and his resurrection and the life that he brings when we follow him. We turn our lives over to him. That's the antidote for our sin. But sometimes when you know that and the reality of what that looks like in your life are very different because if you've, depending on how long you've walked with Jesus, sometimes the basic things of understanding are the things that you and I kind of move past and we think, oh, I got that, and we forget the significance of what that means in our life. And especially when we're talking about this thing called sin, because sometimes we, we even downplay the effects of sin. If you look at the big picture of sin, sin is the very thing that will cost you your soul and your eternity. Now, we don't spend a lot of time dwelling on that because that's obviously, that's overwhelming, but we don't think about that. The, the one thing in our life that actually can determine the future beyond this life comes in the form of sin, whether we choose to deal with it with Jesus or try to handle it on our own. That's a huge deal. Now, when you look at other things in the way that we deal with issues in our culture, when something threatens our health or threatens our longevity or threatens our life, we take it really seriously. So, for example, let's take it in the, physical, in the physical sense, okay? Take it out of the spiritual reality. If you are faced with a life-threatening disease, you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you've been diagnosed with this. You start thinking through, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to battle cancer? Or what treatment am I going to go through? Or what do I have to do? Because I want to live. Wouldn't, that, wouldn't you say that's true? And you will work really hard at that. In fact, in our culture, when it comes to like physical disease, we have a big issue with dying. We don't like it. And so we do everything in our power, including pouring in so much resource in our culture to try to find a cure for diseases. In fact, I just did a simple, probably like five-minute internet search this week on how much resource we pour into curing diseases that threaten our physical lives. So listen to this. It's interesting. Over the last 40 years, the, the National Cancer Institute has spent over $100 billion on cancer research and treatment. A billion, $100 billion. That's a lot. The anti-aging industry in our country is an $80 billion a year industry. $80 billion. $80 billion that we spend on trying to figure out how we turn the clock back, how we fight the aging process, how we don't have to act our age, right? Because we know that the, closer, the, the older we get, somehow the closer we are to death, and we don't want to experience that. Anybody remember the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge? Anybody do that? 
I mean, stupid enough to like, I'm going to pour ice cold water on me for a good cause. That raised $125 million for ALS research. That's amazing. We take it seriously. I don't know if you, uh, there's a couple other things. Celebrities kind of put their weight behind things. So since uh, the year 2000, the Michael J. Fox Foundation has funded $650 million towards a cure for Parkinson's. That's significant. Last year, Mark Zuckerberg, who's the founder of Facebook, gave three, pledged $3 billion of his own money to cure all disease. He's just like going for, like swinging for the fence. He's like, I want to take care of all disease. And then also that it takes between $350 million up to $5 billion to develop one new drug. But we put money into that. We, we pour billions and billions and billions of dollars into what? Finding a cure to the diseases that can take our physical life. Now let's take that on a whole nother level. How seriously do we take what we'll deal with way beyond the physical is what will take our soul. It's the sin. It's the disease of sin within us. It's the poison that's made its way into our lives. And so we have to take that more seriously because it's one thing to die physically. It's another thing to be separated from God forever. Why? Because we never received or took the antidote that God provided our sin. So I want to kind of use that picture this morning because the, the first kind of half of this message is really bad news. I'm just going to give you a warning right now. But it's, it's, it's that kind of scenario. Maybe some in the room, you've been in that situation. So you, you know that something's wrong inside of you. So you go to the doctor and the doctor puts you through a bunch of different tests and you come back into the doctor's office and you sit down and you're in the office and you're, you know, you're sitting on the little table and they're looking at you and like, okay, doctor, give it to me straight. And so the doctor tells you, well, you have this disease, and, and if you don't deal with it, you're going to be dead in three months. That's overwhelming news. But in a sense, that's what we're looking at this morning, is that we've been diagnosed with a terminal disease called sin, and there's an antidote for it, but you and I have to first know what the doctor says about the condition that we're in, which is the condition apart from Jesus. If we don't allow Jesus to, to penetrate our lives, to transform our souls, then we are without him, and what life looks without him, the diagnosis, is really bad. But we have to start there because it motivates us to understand how important Jesus is in making sure that we find the health and the life that we need that comes from him apart from our sin, but with Jesus in our life. So I'm going to walk through these five things that are our condition without Jesus, kind of the condition of our spiritual reality apart from Jesus. The first one is this. Without Jesus, we are guilty. Guilty meaning we are guilty of our own sin. There is no way around it. In fact, Here's some really encouraging verses. <clears throat> That's sarcasm, okay? Romans chapter 3, listen to verse 10 through 12. Paul says this, As it is written, No one is, or not, none is righteous, not even one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Anybody admit that's your life verse? You put that up on your refrigerator? No. What is Paul saying? No matter how good you think you are, nobody's good at all. There is no, because when it comes to our sin, what do we have a tendency to do? We grade on the scale, right? And we always find somebody just a little bit worse than we are. What this is saying is, listen, all of us, nobody is perfect and nobody is good. Everybody has come to a place of sin and brokenness in their life. And that's why if you go on in that same chapter, verse 23 of Romans 3, Paul says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. So as a race uh, or as a basically human beings, we are all guilty before God. We are all sinners. And that means we have to come to grips with that reality that all of us have a disease that we're dying from apart from what Jesus can do in our life. All of us. I never forget, I've told this story a million times when we were in Mexico and we got into a car accident and 
the way they kind of did in Mexico is some of the, the officers, the police officers that showed up first were just there to direct traffic. And then the federal rally showed up and everybody knew who he was. He was the one that had a real authority. So we pulled all of us aside. There were three cars involved in the accident. Two, uh, two of the cars were from the U.S. One was a Mexican national. He pulled us all to the side of the road and one guy started complaining that his neck was hurting him. And so we're like, oh, this is not good. And so this is what the federal rally said to all of us. He said, listen, this is the way it works in Mexico. If he says he's injured, you're all guilty and you're all going to jail. I'm like, whoa, that's not how it works in the United States. And he said, no, so if he's going to claim injury, someone has to pay for his injury. And because of that, all of you, every person in every vehicle is guilty and you're all going to jail. That's not a good day in Mexico when, the, when you're, you're hearing you're going to go to jail. And so we all started freaking out. It's that hopeless feeling like, because in my mind, I'm thinking, no, I wasn't even driving. I was just along for the ride. It wasn't my fault. It was the driver's fault. Arrest them. Let the rest of us go. But all of us were, in his mind, all of us were equally guilty for what had just happened. Which, by the way, miraculously, that guy stopped. His pain went away in his neck, and he was fine, so we all could go on our way. But there's that sense that all of us, we all find ourselves in that place. Whether you think you're guilty or not, you're guilty. And apart from Jesus, we are stuck in that guilt, which leads to the second reality of, of our reality without Jesus. And that is this, our condition is that we are stuck. We are stuck in our sin. We're stuck in our, stuck in our brokenness. We can't get out. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 7. This is verses 17 through 24. This is in a paraphrase called The Message from Eugene Peterson. And tell me if you, you find yourself in this passage. I know I find myself. It so describes our condition. He says this, but I need something more. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions such as they are don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? Anybody want to admit that Paul's like totally dialed in on our condition? We want to do what's right, but we end up doing what's wrong. We make commitments that it's going to be different this time only to find ourselves right back in the same place again. Why? Because apart from what Jesus can do in our life, we are absolutely stuck. We can't get out of this thing. And so there's this tension that we live in all the time of I want to be different, but I can't. And I try hard, but I'm stuck in my sin. And so we're stuck in the disease that's poisoned our soul apart from Jesus. Then there's the third thing, as if this gets any easier. And that is that you and I are absolutely hopeless without Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 says, Remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to God, or strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul's saying, Hope disappears when God is not connected to us. When we, we feel a sense of disconnect from God, there is no hope. Why? 
because he's the only reason that something can be different in our lives. You and I could really work really hard in improving ourselves, and we can make some, some good modifications and some good adjustments, but we cannot transform our soul. We can't. Only Jesus can do that. So that means that apart from Jesus, then you and I find ourselves in this situation where we have absolutely no hope that somehow tomorrow will be better than today. We can have great intentions, we can have good emotions, but we can't have true hope. And I'll tell you why, because hope doesn't come through circumstance. Hope comes through relationship. When you and I have relationship with God, who's far greater than us, then we have this reality that God, who's above me and beyond me, who is with me, can make my life different. See, when you and I lose relationship, that's when we actually lose hope. I was a perfect picture of this. In fact, uh, I can't remember who it was who actually uh, wrote it, but the uh, movie Castaway with uh, Tom Hanks. Anybody remember that movie? Okay, yeah, Wilson. That's like the famous line from that movie. So long story short, uh, airline crash. He ends up on a desert island. He's there for a couple years. He's trying to survive. He, he f- figures out, he, he makes this, this attempt to find a way home. And so he makes this raft, and if you know the story, kind of halfway through the journey, a volleyball washes up on the shore, and he makes it into his friend. And he calls it Wilson. And he talks to Wilson, even though that Wilson doesn't talk back, and Wilson now has hair, and he has a face. And so Wilson's his friend. Well, and he gets out on this raft, and he's trying to, to get through rough seas. One time when he goes through rough seas, Wilson gets detached from the raft and starts to float away. Everybody knows that. He's like, he's crying, Wilson, right? And I remember when I first time I watched him, like, this is stupid. <laughs> it's a volleyball. Come on. And then I really thought about it because if you watch the movie, everything turns at that point because it's after Wilson floats away that he actually gives up. He loses the will to live, and he just lays on the raft and eventually gets discovered by a, a, a ship going by. But he loses the will to live. Why? Because he lost relationship even though it was a volleyball. He lost relationship, and in losing relationship, he lost all hope because now he was completely isolated. And when you and I live in the reality of our sin and being poisoned, guess what? We are completely isolated. That means with isolation comes this hopelessness that sets in that I can't change my circumstance. I am stuck in this place, and I can't get beyond it. Going further, this this is the one that's really difficult. The fourth thing of our condition without Jesus is that we are objects of God's wrath. Wrath is the characteristic of our life. And here's the scary part. You and I don't even know it. We we don't even know it. If you said yes to Jesus, you and I live in this reality that we have a covering, we have a shield that protects us from the wrath of God. And I'll explain that in a moment. But in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3, it says, Among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What is wrath? People always think that, okay, wrath is because God's this grumpy old dude that just likes being, likes crushing people and destroying their lives, and so he's just angry all the time. No, God's, the the wrath of God is God's righteous anger towards sin that exacts punishment on it because it deserves it. And when there is an offense and when there is a violation, payment has to be made. The wrath of God has to be satisfied. It's kind of a, kind of a legal kind of concept. So because apart from Jesus, you and I sin and we're guilty, guess what we are? We are an object of God's wrath. It's kind of like this. So anybody seen a movie like when some guy's a fugitive and he's running and he's getting hunted down by people and maybe the SWAT team shows up and, and he's standing and all of these sharpshooters and everybody who, who surround him have guns with like the laser sight on them, you know, the little red light. 
And as he's running and his back is turned to everybody, all these little red lights are all over his back and his head and everything. He's got like 25 red lights on him. And so all it takes is one person to pull the trigger and he's a dead man. That's wrath. Whether you and I know it or not, apart from Jesus, the sights of God's wrath and judgment are directed at us every single day of our lives. That's scary. That's frightening. But you don't get up in the morning and think, wow, I really feel the wrath of God today. You know, we don't do that. But did you know that you and I are the object? We are, that's the nature. That's who, what we have because of our sin. It's not because God is mean or bad. It's because God is just. And his, his wrath requires payment. So that means for you and I to think through that, this is the scary part. At any moment of any day, if the trigger gets pulled on our life and we die, we face one thing after death. In fact, Hebrews says it, nine, verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, accountability. And if you want to be accountable for in your life, you stand before God without any covering or any shield of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, which means you and I stand guilty before God. We're guilty. And that means then we deserve what? Punishment, because that will satisfy God's wrath. Now, you and I don't think about those things. But do you and I think about, not only for us, do you think about the world around you? That every person that you cross paths with that doesn't know Jesus has those laser sights on them. And if, they, they're, they're, if their life ends without Jesus, then what does the Bible say? Then they face judgment. It's getting pretty quiet in here, so I'm going to move on. Then this is the final condition. Trust me, it will get better, okay? The final condition of us without Jesus is that we are dead. We are dead, not physically, but spiritually. There's, there's, there's this, this reality of death. And, and it's hard to, to put our fingers on it because you and I feel quite alive, don't we? You're breathing, your heart is beating, your ears are working, you see things, you feel things, you feel alive. Listen to what Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You were dead. Apart from Jesus, you're dead. What does that even mean? You're like, I feel totally fine today. I don't feel dead. The spiritual condition of all humanity apart from Jesus is this. You and I have flatlined. There is no pulse. And the only way you and I are coming back from that is if somebody comes along with an AED or no CPR and can revive us. Otherwise, we will go from being, in a sense, legally dead because we have no pulse to being officially dead because we have no life that's the reality of what death looks like spiritually that we face that kind of death and what's worse than death when you don't exist anymore is death when you do exist but you exist apart from god that's death because the reality for us is everybody lives forever did you know that everybody lives forever it's just a matter of who and where you're going to live that life you're going to be with jesus or apart from him Jesus has made a way for us to be with him. So that's the reality of the bad news is that you and I are flatlining right now and we are going fast and something has to be done. Somebody has to come along to save us. Otherwise, we're going to end up in a place that we don't want to end up. That's why the antidote to our sin is so important. That's why you know, we spend billions of dollars on research for our physical ailments. We should spend our entire life in search of the antidote for our soul and our sin, which we find in Jesus. So here's the good news, okay? You endured the bad news. 
when you say yes to Jesus, when you realize his death and his resurrection is what brings you to a place of dealing with your sin in your life, then you experience amazing things. The first thing is this. Our condition with Jesus is innocent. We're innocent. This is crazy. Now, what you're going to discover over the next five points is all the verses I just read to you in those first bad, negative, bad news five points, I didn't read all of the verses in context. Now I am, because watch what happens. Romans chapter 3, verses 23, and then verse 24 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then verse 24 says this, And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad that it didn't end at verse 23? But the hope is what? Because of God's grace and his mercy, we're justified through Jesus, we're redeemed, which means this is what's crazy. We are, before God, we are not just not guilty. There's a huge difference between being not guilty and being innocent. And we know that from our own court system. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says. For our sake, he made him, it's talking about God to Jesus, made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the crazy exchange with Jesus. He comes, lives a perfect life, is perfect in any way, doesn't deserve death, does, doesn't deserve punishment because he's perfect, but willingly goes to the cross for our, for our sin and brokenness, and then he makes this crazy, just ridiculous deal. He says, if you will come and follow me, this is the deal, I will give you my righteousness if you give me your sin. That is insane. But what do we have then? If you will hand over your sin and brokenness and broken life to Jesus, you get the righteousness of God. So when God looks at you, he doesn't say, hey, you're not guilty. He says, you're innocent because you're covered by the righteousness of Jesus purchased through his blood on the cross. That is significant because for most of us, see, what does not guilty mean? Not guilty means that you had an attorney that was good enough to get you off. Not guilty means you may not be guilty of that particular crime you were charged with. You might be guilty of something else, but not that one. What does innocent mean? It means you're completely innocent of every crime that you're even accused of. Why? Because it is what Jesus has done to cover you. And why is that important? Because some of us don't live as though we're innocent. We just live as though we're not guilty, which means we either got away with something that God doesn't know about, which he knows everything, or somehow we're doing good over here, but we know the brokenness in us. So we're, we're not guilty, really, but we are kind of guilty, but really not because, and so we live in this place where it's like, before God, you're innocent. That is incredible news. You're fully exonerated. The charge is gone, and you are innocent before God. That's why there's an antidote to our sin, because no longer does it hold us. And then there's a second thing. That is that you and I, with Jesus, we are now free. We're no longer stuck in our sin. So again, go back to Romans chapter 7. Let me read verses 22 to verse 25. I stopped at 24 before, but listen again. It says, it happens so regularly that, that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me co uh, covertly rebel just when I least expect it. They take charge. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? Now, the beauty of verse 25, the answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does 
He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. But thank God, Jesus, he can and he did do something on our behalf. He gave his life for us. So that, that tension that we constantly live in, that, that great in, intention of, I'm going to do better, and it's going be, to be new this time, and, and which is all on us, now is not only on us, it's on him. So I'm no longer stuck because he has set me free from that. And some of us, we're dying for that. And the reason we struggle with that is because there's something that goes along with guilt. It's called shame. See, when you and I are really guilty, what happens, because of our own pride, because of our own sin nature, even when we're guilty, we don't want people to know we're guilty. We don't want to admit that we're wrong. We don't want to admit that we're broken. And so what happens is this thing called shame comes along in our life, and it, pr- it, pr- it provides a covering for our guilt. It covers over our life, and because shame kind of doesn't want anyone to look inside, doesn't want anybody to know that we're guilty of something, so shame tries to put up kind of a, a, a good front so that nobody really knows, and so you and I live in secrecy all the time. Shame's just covering us so that we don't have to deal with our sin, we don't have to deal with our guilt, and so everybody will think we're okay when we know deep down inside we are. You know what shame does? It drives us away from people and away from God. In fact, it doesn't mean that you physically run away from people, but you distance yourself in relationships and you're never authentic or transparent or real because shame won't allow you to do that because there's guilt inside of you. What happens when guilt is removed? There's nothing to hide. When there's nothing to hide, what happens? Shame disappears because you don't have to hide anything. Why? Because God has removed your guilt from you and when you stand before him and you walk in forgiveness... That means that you are free from the guilt and shame that used to be a part of your life. And some of you here today need to hear that fact because you have lived a life of shame which has forced you deeper into your sin and brokenness because you're trying to cover over what you know is wrong with you. And God's saying you've got to deal with the core, and the core is your guilt. And your guilt can be taken care of through my sacrifice on the cross. And with guilt goes shame. And then we're free. Is that slightly good news to anybody today? This is this, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, if you've been in the church, the sad thing is sometimes, I almost feel like you can know Jesus too long because this becomes commonplace. It's like, oh yeah, I get grace, mercy, yeah, I get all that stuff. Really? Do you really get it? Do we really understand this? Yeah, getting a little passionate, I'll move on. Third thing, (laughs) our condition with Jesus also is hope-filled. It's full of hope. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12, and then verse 13. Let me read all of it. Remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But then verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, remember, what, what is, where do we lose hope when we lose relationship? So what does God do through Jesus when we were far off? He brings us back in relationship with God again. So what do we have? We have hope. Why? Because we have hope in relationship. What gives you hope in this world that even though you know everybody dies and your day will come someday, what gives you hope beyond this world? It's the fact if you know Jesus, he's standing on the other side of death. There is a relationship that supersedes our physical death. It doesn't end at the end of this life. It goes on through death so that you and I have Jesus. What is that? That is relationship. Yesterday, I attended the the funeral and the service for Pastor Serrano, who's the the pastor of the congregation, the Hispanic congregation that meets in our our church building. 600 people packed into our old building because they couldn't fit here. 
so they could come and they could honor his life. And it was a room, it was crazy. It's always amazing when you're at a, a memorial or a funeral and there's joy in the room. How is that possible? Because they were celebrating a man's life and they knew exactly where he was. Because he had hope beyond this life. They all had hope beyond this life because they knew Jesus stands on the other side of death. Why? Because Jesus has conquered death. He went through death. He rose from the dead and now he awaits us to do the same. And if that's, if that's the reality for us, that means that I have hope in this life. That even at the worst moment of this life, I still have, have hope. Why? Because as Paul said, if I die in this physical reality, it is what? Gain. Because then I'm with Jesus. In fact, yesterday, one of the guys who shared at the funeral, I'm like, I wanted to tell him, hey, back off. You're going to want everybody, everyone's going to want to die today so they could be with Jesus. You're making it sound so appealing. No one's going to want to be here anymore. But that's the reality when you have that hope. You know that it's only going to get better. It's all relationship. And then the fourth thing, our condition with Jesus is that we are loved. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Again, reading beyond just what I read the first time. Among whom all, uh, all once lived in the passions of her flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. Is that incredible? If you just... Think about that, because God loved us so much, he wouldn't leave us alone. He wouldn't leave us to die. He wouldn't leave us to be stuck. He wouldn't leave us in our sin. He loved us so much that he actually, Jesus on his behalf, came and gave his life for us so that we could be with him. It's, it's, it's incredible. Why? Because of his love. Love changes everything in relationship. Everything. Everything. When you are in a relationship where you deeply love a person and they deeply love you, it changes the way you live your life. If you've never been in love before, you've never experienced the depth of that, then you don't know what it's about when it said the Bible says that God loves us in his great love and mercy for us. That God's love is so profound, it changes the way we live our life. Marriage and, and relationships are good. Maybe you're in a dating relationship and you deeply love that person. Maybe you're on your way to marriage. Maybe you're in marriage. If you truly love your spouse or your fiance, and they love you, you begin to change as a person. I watch it happen all the time. I watch what happens because what happens is when you are living your life out of love for somebody else, you start to look at your behavior differently because you're don't, you no longer look at your behavior on how it impacts you. You look at your behavior on how it impacts them. And your love motivates you to do something different if your behavior negatively impacts the person that you love. And that's why when you and I truly know that God loves us, it changes everything. Because then it isn't like, oh man, now I have to obey. No, I want to obey. Because I know how much he loves me. I went through this, when Kim and I started dating, and then we started, after a little while, we started talking about marriage. I remember my parents. I was the problem child in our family growing up. Anybody know, were you the problem child? We had four kids in our family, and I was the one. You can ask my sisters. They would say, who was the worst? It was John. They would say it. I know, it's true, and I own it, okay? I, re I remember I was there. I had a front row seat to my behavior. But as I grew older, I remember after having conversations with my mom and dad, they would say, you know, and they would just be honest with me. They said, you know, we prayed for you for so many years. And we're honest, I'm, we're honest, I don't, we didn't think you were going to make it. <laughs> Seriously. 
I mean, it's funny today that I'm, I, am, I am 48 years old and my parents still treat me like I'm five. I'll do something and they're like, we're so proud of you. I'm like, well, thanks, but I'm not five anymore. And what they're saying is that we can't believe you actually turned out to be the person that you are. That's what they're saying. And you know when, that's, when I started to see, obviously, a huge change was the more I followed Jesus in my life, the more my behavior changed. But you know what? One of the things that God kind of, kind of accelerated the process is when Kim and I started talking about marriage and then when we got married. Because I, start, I loved her so much, I started thinking about the way I live my life and not how it impacts me, but how it impacted her. And I remember parents saying, wow, you've changed. You're not the same person anymore. I'm like, it's not me. It's Jesus and Kim. Put those two together and I'm good to go. Because I was motivated. Make sense? That's God's love. It changes us. And that's why truly, true transformation doesn't come through compliance. Doesn't. The law demanded compliance of people, which means you obey or you pay the price. That's not true obedience. Obedience comes from the heart. And when you know you're loved, you can be obedient. Why? Because it isn't like, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to go to hell, so I better be a good person. No. Hell is not even part of the equation when love is involved. Do you realize that? If hell is the only, mo only motivation to follow Jesus, then it's not good enough. Because you and I are just being compliant. Then the final thing is this. Our condition with Jesus is alive. We're alive. Through the cross, Jesus comes along, pardon the kind of analogy, with the spiritual AED or CPR and brings us back to life. Ephesians chapter 2, all of verse 13, I only read half before, says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. We're forgiven. What causes death? Sin. Unresolved sin in our life causes ultimate spiritual death in us. But when sin is dealt with, death is no longer part of the equation. Why did Jesus rise from the dead? Because he was sinless. The grave couldn't hold him. That's why he's alive. So how do we eventually rise from the dead? Sin can't hold us. Why? Because we have the righteousness of Jesus. And we're alive. Listen to in the message, again, using the paraphrase, the same verse in Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15 says it this way, when you were stuck in your old sin-dead life, you were incapable of responding to God. God. God brought you alive right along with Christ. Think of it, all sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, the old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them out naked through the streets. I love that paraphrase you realize what Jesus did at the cross? He took all of the garbage in our life and wiped it clean in one moment so that we could what? Be alive. Sin no longer holds on to us. But let me close with this. This is important and significant when it comes to life. Because again, all we deal is, we deal with physical. That's, that's our reality. So we think of death and life in terms of physical terms. But here's the truth. All of us have life in terms of we live because we have breath in our lungs and blood in our veins and, but not all of us truly truly live to the fullest capacity of what god created us for remember what jesus said in john 10 he said the enemy came to what steal destroy i have come that that they talking about people could have life depending on the translation life to the full life to the fullest capacity was jesus just talking about eternal life 
that starts after you die? No. He was talking about all of life. Eternal life starts the moment that you give your life to Jesus. That's, and it's not just a length of life. It's a capacity and quality of life that God has purchased for you and I. This is significant. Why? Because when you come to Jesus, you come alive. Which means for the first time in your life, you realize what it means to fully be human. To the fullest capacity of what God created you to be. And that means that there's a different dimension to your life than just what everybody else lives. Everybody else, whether they know it or not, just simply exists apart from Jesus. Now, they make existence look really good, but something inside of them never actually feels the fullness of capacity of life because why? They're apart from Jesus, and if you're apart from Jesus, what are you? We already went through it. You're guilty, and you're stuck, and you're dead, right? And you're an object of wrath. When that all is removed and you become alive, there's a new dimension of life that comes to bear on who we are. And as I'm describing it, some of you are like, I don't get it. I prayed the prayer. I know I'm forgiven, but man, life just kind of like it has always been. Maybe you haven't experienced fully who Jesus is in your life yet. Because here's the thing. If this is true, if what we just read from the scriptures is true, life has to be different. It has to be. Not that you and I work it up and like, okay, it's going to be a bit different today. I'm going to really live today. No, something inside of us has to be alive and different than anything else or anyone else in the world. Can you think of moments in your life where you look back at that moment? Now, some people, it's like a near-death experience. That's one way of saying you were alive because you know you're not dead. But can you think of a moment in your life where you look back and you were in some context and you, you knew that God was at work around you and you were experiencing something? And I know for me, I look back and think, at that moment, I felt fully alive. I mean, fully alive to the experience of all of what God was doing around me. I've had a few of those moments. I want to have more of those moments because that's the capacity of life that God gives to us. One of those moments in my life came six years ago in northern Uganda when we were traveling around with some, the medical organization that was Christian-based, and they had started these medical clinics throughout the northern part of Uganda. And if you recall, northern Uganda was the, the hotbed of the Civil War in Uganda with the Lord's Resistance Army and children soldiers and all that went on with that and the incredible atrocities and the abuse that went on in that context. And so we're traveling around in that area and we get to this medical clinic that's in the middle of nowhere. And as we're driving these back roads, these dirt roads, the, the, the driver's telling us the stories of how they've been doing this for a number of years. And when there was actually active war going on in that context, they're showing us bullet holes in their vehicles. They're getting shot at. And the medical clinic was, was established because there was a huge crisis, not only Uganda, but all of Africa, with dealing with AIDS. And what was happening, it was the second generation of AIDS that was hitting even more Partially because children were being born HIV positive because of their parents. And so there were just thousands of kids across northern Uganda who were dealing with this. So this medical clinic starts to deal with kids having to deal with a being HIV positive or having full-blown AIDS. So when we drive to this clinic, we're, we're told this story. And when we drive up, they give us the kind of the tour of the clinic side. And the whole time that we're going through this clinic... I'm hearing music in the background, and I don't understand the music, and I don't understand the words, but we're in Uganda, I didn't understand most things. So we're going on this tour, and I'm just amazed. I mean, this, this little clinic has serving thousands of kids and impacting all these villages in the surrounding area. And then finally, at the end of the tour, we're getting closer and closer to the music, and finally, we get to the end of kind of where the clinic is, and they open this door, and there's a room that we walk into, and the room is about the th a third the size of our, our auditorium here, and it had about 200 people in it, just wall-to-wall -wall people. 
and they were all singing. And the moment we walked in, they turned around and they looked at our team and they all started applauding and they brought us in. And, and then it started to hit me as it started to unfold what I was witnessing. In that room were a lot of kids who apart from that clinic would already be dead. And they were there. And then beyond that, as we're watching these kids share and through interpreter what their experience has been, most of them, if not all of them, didn't have any living parents because they had died of AIDS. So they're finding hope in this. And then this is what's crazy. There were 40 pastors in that room of those 200 people that just a few years prior, before this clinic had started, had never ever talked to each other at all. There were 40 pastors who were from different denominations who were in different villages and were very territorial in their approach to the gospel. They thought, this is my village, this is my church, and I'm not going to share with anybody else. And so they wouldn't even relate to each other. But then what happened is the AIDS crisis hit. And they were all completely in the deep end over their head. They couldn't help their people. They're watching people die every single day, and they're crying out for help. And suddenly this medical clinic shows up, and so they start going to the medical clinic. And when they start going to the medical clinic with their people, guess who they run into? Other pastors from other villages. And they're like, you had five people die this week too? You had 15 people die last month? And suddenly all the walls and barriers of their denominations and their theologies just dropped. And so when we came into that room, you know what they wanted to do? After they introduced us and we talked a little bit, you know, they said, this is what they wanted to do. We want to worship with you. That was their goal was. So they had this beautiful Ugandan band that played instruments I've never seen in my life and sang songs that I had no idea what we were singing. So I just spoke in tongues because I knew God understood that. But for 30 to 40 minutes, we just worshiped. And people were sobbing and I was sobbing. I didn't even know what the language was. And then afterwards, we went out under this tree and all the pastors gathered and we took this huge picture. And I still have the picture today of these 40 pastors that actually some of them hated each other. Can you imagine? In the name of the gospel, they hated each other because they were all territorial. Yet they found unity over the issue of AIDS. And so you're seeing not only the saving of lives of those kids who would be dead without the clinic, you're seeing the salvation of their souls as they're coming to Jesus. You're seeing churches partner together in northern Uganda in a place that's been just desolate with war. All this, and I'm standing there, and honestly, it was one of those moments, I'm looking at this, and I said, okay, God, you can take me now. I've seen what I need to see. I mean, this is incredible. Nothing like this happens apart from God's presence. And so for me, that's a glimpse of this is the capacity of life that God has given to us to be able to see his work in us and the work in his work in other people to save and restore and transform and bring unity all for his glory. I share that and you're, maybe your experience isn't in northern Uganda. Maybe your experience actually could be in Haiti and you just don't know it yet. Because every time we talk about Haiti, John said it. He has people, I have people come, oh, I don't think I could do that. Oh, yes, you can. Because God can work through you. And part of the reason you and I maybe haven't experienced life to the full yet is because we haven't followed Jesus in his words. Jesus said, if you want to find life, what do you have to do? You have to surrender yours. Give it up. In order to live, you have to die first. You die to yourself. And this is the thing. The reason we push back on stuff is because either we think we can't do it or we're not going to be satisfied and do it. We won't be happy, so I don't want to do it. That's the lie the enemy that brings to our life. There's so many things that God says, if you would just die to yourself, if you would look at me, not only is the one that transforms your soul, but the one who's the example, as I died and was risen to life, you can die too and actually have the fullest capacity of life, but you haven't experienced it because you're too afraid or you have an excuse, you have a reason why it's not gonna happen. Maybe you should try. 
And maybe you'll realize when you get outside of yourself, that's where you're going to find life. You're going to find all of what Jesus did for you. Jesus did not die on the cross so that you and I could just avoid hell. Did you know that? He died on the cross to give us the fullest capacity of life. Are we experiencing that? I'm going to ask you, would you close your eyes? The worship team is going to join us for one last song. And I want that song to be a declaration. We sang it earlier of Jesus' grace and his mercy coming into our lives and taking our dead, broken lives and bringing them to life. But just right now, I want you to, to think about, in all honesty, in this room right now, you may have be somebody who, you look back over your lifespan and the majority of your life, you've known Jesus. And in doing that, maybe you've, you've thought about these things before, but it's been a long time since you've remembered all of what Jesus has done for you. You forgot what it was before Jesus. You forgot what it was like without him. And you're reminded again today that even though it's it's crazy, we were dead, which means we could do nothing and we did nothing, God was working on our behalf to bring us to life, to deal with our sin, to bring us into his family and to accept us. And this reminder comes to you today in a way that God is saying there's a capacity of life that you've yet to experience that I purchased for you with my life and now I want you to live it. Or maybe you're here and now you know that you look back on your life and you would say my life has been a life apart from Jesus. I've never known him. But you're starting to realize today maybe for the first time now you have an understanding of why life has been so difficult, why you have felt so stuck, why, why you have lived with such shame in your life. And you're realizing for the first time there is an antidote for all of those things in your life. It's not a pill, it's not a surgery, it's not a treatment plan. It's a person. It's a relationship with Jesus who brings us back to God giving his life for us on the cross. If you do not know Jesus today and your desire is to know him because you want to live life to the fullest capacity in right relationship with him, then right now as we we pray and in a moment as we sing, I'm gonna ask you that you would just talk to him. By his spirit, he hears you and he's present today and he wants to come in and to bring forgiveness and life as you turn from the way that you used to live, the dead way of life, and you turn towards him to embrace the life that he has for you, that you would just tell him, that's what I want. Jesus, I'm giving my life to you and then let him breathe life into you. Lord Jesus, we, we, we desire deeply and need deeply your life in us and you have made it possible through your death and your resurrection that you have made it a way for us to deal with the sin issue. We don't have to be terminal. We can be alive forever in you. So Lord Jesus, would you, however you want to accomplish that in each one of us today, come by your spirit in these moments and do your work in us, Jesus. We ask in your name.